stories to be told. I'm Jane Wilcox. Today, we are talking about uh, two books. Uh, they are Google for Genealogists and Death Certificates and Archaic Medical Terms. We have the author, Helen V. Smith, joining us today from Australia, uh, which I, is just why I added anywhere in the world today. Um, I met Helen about a year ago. Uh, we were both par participating in the FGS uh, genealogy cruise to Alaska, and uh, we were table mates uh, for our dinners. And so I uh, got to know Helen a little bit uh, from the cruise and uh, found out that she was uh, just publishing uh, the Google book. And so I invited Helen to come on to the show to talk about uh, Google for Genealogists and then her first book, uh, The Death Certificates and Archaic Medical Terms. So, Helen, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so, Helen, as I asked uh, all of my guests at the beginning, uh, where were you born, raised, your education, and your careers? Okay. I was born in the early 1960s in Brisbane, Australia, to a fifth-generation Australian mother and to an English father. He had emigrated to Australia as a nine-year-old with his mother in 1949, having sadly lost his father in World War II. I was raised in Brisbane until I was 14 when the family bought a business in Melbourne, which is the other end of the country from us. So we went down there for five years and then came back to Brisbane after that. So I continued my high school education for a year in Melbourne and then started with the Queensland distance education because the education wasn't quite what we were wanting. Now, distance education... It's quite different today in the times of the internet. I'm talking back in like 1979, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth nearly. It was pre-internet, so you received your notes by mail. You did your assignments. You sent them back by mail. The teachers marked them and sent them back to you. Now, I was fine with my history and English and even biology, although my mum never did quite forgive me for doing the dissection of the ox heart on the kitchen table. But for things like higher level maths, because I was doing, we call maths one, maths two, physics and chemistry doesn't really work terribly well by current. Helen, we have lost you. And I hope we're going to get her back. I am communicating with Helen to see if she is still there, she is. I'm going to ask her to try connecting again.
she's going to try to connect again. And here she is. Hi, Jen. Helen, are I'm back you again. Okay, there back. we go. <laughs> okay, where did I get up to before I ran uh, away? We're talking about the, the ox heart on the kitchen table. Ah, uh, yes. Mum wasn't terribly thrilled about that. So we came back to Brisbane in 1983, and I went to night school and finished the topics like Maths 1, Maths 2, Physics, and Chemistry that correspondence just doesn't work terribly well for. Uh, then I went to university and did two years as a medical technologist course, got a full-time job working for Queensland Health in a public health microbiology lab, and went back at night for six years to do my degree as a medical scientist, continued working for Queensland Health, um, and I am still working for Queensland Health, and I also later on did a postgraduate qualification in public health, majoring in epidemiology. And I'm currently the supervisor of the, pub, the state public health reference micro lab. In my job, I investigate bacterial outbreaks and vaccine preventable diseases. And about 15 years ago, I started looking at molecular techniques for identifying bacterial outbreaks and distinguishing bacteria. And that's how I got started with DNA testing, which has stood me in really nice stead for DNA and genealogy. <laughs> All right. So uh, Helen was telling me her her title, or I guess what we would call her uh, career, is a public health microbiologist. Is that correct? Public health microbiologist and molecular epidemiologist, which is why on passports it just says scientist. <laughs> okay. All right. And which makes you very qualified for the second book that we're going to be talking about, Archaic Medical Terms. Um, so, Helen, how did you get interested in genealogy? Well, being English... And I knew his, his mother died when I was 12, and his mother was one of 13. I did meet two of her sisters when I was a very young child when they came out to Australia for a three-month holiday. But you didn't really know much about the people in England. So I was always very interested in his side of things. And then, But it was really mum that got me involved because there'd been a split in her family. And she never knew her paternal grandfather. And in fact, his name was not to be mentioned in the house. Uh, in 1956, uh, she and her mother saw his funeral notice in the paper. Unfortunately, two hours after the funeral, and they found that he'd actually been living at that time in an old age home about five miles from where they lived. So... She did a few of the plaintive, oh, I wish I knew more about him. I wish I knew more about him. So you could actually say it was because I basically wanted to shut her up. I started doing some research. And because she'd never seen a picture or anything. And I set out to find him in 1986 as well. So basically my two careers started around the same time. And I found some snippets and some bits and pieces and got hooked and I've never really stopped ever since from there. Luckily, I did manage to find a photograph of him for her long before she died in 2012. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So now uh, 
we've got your two books. The uh, most recent one is uh, Google for Genealogists, and then the first was Death Certificates and Archaic Medical Terms. What was your inspiration to write both of these books? Well, I was doing public health lecturing for many, many years and then started doing family history lecturing ooh, about 15 years ago now. And I was often getting people asking me the terms. What, what does this term on this death certificate mean? And my ancestor died of this because they knew I worked in a medical area. And so I decided in 2010 that I'd write a book. And so I did my first edition published in 2011. And it seemed a really good idea at the time. And it, it has been well received. And it's got some really nice things that I've had fun with. And then the Google book. Every time I do a lecture on Google and all of the applications you can use for family history, there's so many sort of light bulb moments for people that it seemed a really good idea to actually get a book written at the time because I do pretty good handouts when I do talks for five or six pages, but it doesn't. it's not the same as having a full book. Sure, I've sure. Got a few so more books in the pipeline. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll talk about those too if you can share. Uh, actually, why don't you, can, can you share any right now? Okay, probably the next one that will come out probably not till early next year will be researching a health history and why it's important because the life you save could be your own and and what is good about doing it and what's why you need to take a little bit of uh, not becoming a hypochondriac because potentially you might have a risk factor. Okay. All right. So then let's talk about Google. What are we going to find in this book? Basically, you're going to find out all of the wonderful things that Google is because it's not just a search engine, although it does searches extremely well. It's got at least 30 or so other functions that you could use for your family history and suddenly being able to realize what you can do with that and also work out how you can make Google work for you, even when you're asleep, really makes it a plus. So being able to search effectively is also very important. And of course, with a surname like Smith, I had to learn to search effectively. <laughs> and you mentioned in uh, your book, how many lines of Smith do you have? 13. Wow. Very unfair. I even have one small village in Kent where Kezia Smith marries George Smith. I believe it's possibly she didn't think she could remember her, her married name because out of a village that has less than 200 people and they're two totally different lines of Smiths. Why would you do it to me? <laughs> for the challenge. So for the, the Google book, what applications uh, do you cover? Or I'm sorry, uh, how many applications do you cover? Well, basically, I do a large amount on searching because there's lots of different operators on searching. And then there's around 27 other things I talk about. And, you know, that's a lot of different functions. Now, some of these aren't talked about in huge depth. Google Earth, I talk about it and give you some clues to get some more information. But you could write a couple of books easily just on Google Earth. And one of the things with this Unlock the Past range of books we do is they're a guidebook. So we try and keep them around that 60 pages. They're an A5 booklet. So we, we don't want to kick it up too big because it takes it out of the price range of a lot of people. So we try and keep them in that smaller range situation. So if you write three or four pages on a topic, 
it actually works quite well for each of these specific items. Okay, and for those of us in the U.S. who don't know what A5 is, will you explain that? Ooh, roughly, if you actually if you actually folded your letter size paper over and then added about half an inch to the edge of it, that would be about an A5 size. All right, so they're they're very handy handy booklets. Um, are are there any functions for Google that you didn't include in the book? Um, I didn't. I included all of them. As I said, I didn't really cover Google Earth in great deal. And uh, Google Photos has been developed a fair bit more since I published this. In fact, Google Picasa, people have known about Picasa for quite a long time and a lot of people have used it and loved it. And we sort of felt that Google possibly was winding Picasa down. Because what Google does is it buys up companies that has applications it can meld into its conglomerate, I suppose is a word. And, but it hadn't really been further developing Picasa since about or early 2015. So there was good chance that it was going to wind it down. Unfortunately, why it had to decide to formally announce to wind it down on the day the book was published, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but so Google Photos has actually developed a bit more since then. So I, I haven't actually really gone into the depth on Google Photos. And as I say, Google Earth, I haven't really covered in great detail. It's there okay. and I've talked about where to get more information, but I haven't really gone into great depth on it. Okay. And do you use all of the, the functions or applications in your own genealogy work? Yep. Now, being good family historians, we can make everything work for family history. And so there's always a way of making any application work. But yes, I do actually, in fact, use things. And sometimes it's funny what you can use because you don't actually necessarily think of it as a family history function. Now, a lot of people don't think about patents because Google's got a really nice patent search because they think, oh, I don't have an inventor in my family. Well, it's surprising. Quite a few of you probably do because it's amazing. Do you know that there's something like 1,500 types of coffins and the humble vegetable peeler, there's at least 300 different patents out for those. But it's also useful to go and have a look-see as to when were certain things invented to know whether perhaps your family ever had a chance of using them because they hadn't been invented yet or how the invention and how it changed your ancestors' lives. So Google Patents is one of those really nice ones where you can waste an awful lot of time. Mind you, there are also some things in there that should never have been invented, but we won't go there. <laughs> and actually, and as you were talking about that, I remember uh, uh, some uh, historical fiction books, uh, that some of the critiques about them are they have the characters using something that had not been invented at the time that, that the character lived. So this is very important for not only family historians, but then for, for writers as well. Well, it's funny because pe people use a 2016 filter when they look back to the past. And it's amazing when I talk about books and things to various people and the young ones particularly, you know, they've read a murder mystery and the person's particularly generally young blonde girl is running down the street in a panic 
And they say, well, why didn't you pull out a phone? Um, I'm sorry, but the book's set in 1972. We didn't have mobile phones. There were those strange things called phone boxes, you know, like Superman used to change in. So, yeah, perspectives is one of the really interesting things with some of these things. <laughs> sure, sure. So would you say that there are some uh, applications or functions that are more suited for genealogy? Well, definitely the searching and being effective with your searches are. And, of course, what some people don't remember or realize is that you can actually design a really good search function. And effectively, you want to narrow your search down particularly if you've got a surname like Smith, or you want to narrow something down to a specific area. So you've actually set all your operators up and you've got it working beautifully, but you don't want to have to rerun that all the time. So set up a Google alert and Google will go and search that stuff for you. And then it will just send you an email at regular intervals and you get to define the interval. So it's actually doing your work for you in the background. And every person can have quite a few hundred alerts. Okay, and actually that, I was going to follow up on something that you mentioned earlier on, having Google work for you while you're asleep. So it, it sounds like this alert is is one of those things. Yes, it definitely does do that, and it, it, it's a major plus. The other one that's a really nice plus for that is Google Scholar. Now, a lot of people just ignore Google Scholar because they don't think it has any relevance to them, but really it does. Because there are so many history students, history academics around the world, geography, occupational, even medical, the whole range of professional people writing articles. And maybe it's about a company history. Maybe it's about the history of a kiln making bricks in a, a rural area. Maybe it's the incidence of people who died in coal mines in that local area. And by using Google Scholar and doing a similar sort of searching and setting up a Google Scholar alert, you can also get those emails delivered to you of new articles on your pet topic. Now, certainly a lot of these are academic journals. We're getting more and more into open access publishing now, which means it's, it's freely available and it's not just published in a journal that's going to be held at a university. But you can actually access a lot of these at universities, request a university to copy it for you, or just go to your local university. A lot of the universities have online access. Generally, most places you can actually get your state library or even a county library may also have access to some of those journals through the university library system, which means you can get access to those. Plus, we have, all have our own favorite authors, Elizabeth Shawn Mills, for example. I've got a Google Scholar alert on her, so every time she publishes something new, I'll find out about it. All right, very good. And what are maybe two or three other Google functions that genealogists could use and, and maybe we've never heard of before. Okay, the image reverse search is a strong one. When you go to the Google Images page, when of course most people have clicked on that, that Google Images is a great way of finding different images, but if you look on that search bar, you'll see a little camera on the search bar. If you click on that camera, that gives you the option of uploading a photograph you have on your computer. Now, it's not so great for facial recognition, although 
say you have a wedding photo and you put it up and it's a family photo. Google will go hunting then to potentially see is has that photo occurred somewhere else on the web. Now, you may have a fifth cousin somewhere who also has a copy of that photo, who has been writing a blog, because lots of people are writing blogs now. And of course, Google has Blogger as a free um, way of actually doing that. Or perhaps it's turned up in a local history blog. Or maybe it's even turned up in a book and Google's done some indexing with it through Google Books, and which means you'll get that. If you're just trying to get a person, it's not so good on that. Although many of our ancestors actually collected photographs of film stars uh, or famous people. And you sort of look at it thinking, well, maybe that's that person or is it someone else? It's amazing how many photos of Queen Victoria there are in people's photograph albums. And it will actually return those to you. But the best thing it can be for is landmarks. So that holiday you went on, you can't quite remember where you took that photo. As long as there's a nice landmark there, it will come back. If you've got certain buildings that are well-known buildings, maybe if it might only be a fraction, half the building, you can't quite work it out, it's worth doing those. Military badges, even cars, because now I don't know about you, a car gets me from A to B. Uh, I don't really pay too much attention about models and types, particularly not getting back into the 40s and 50s. But if you do some of those images, you've got a good chance of actually getting some information about the make and model. Interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about some photo albums uh, that uh, both my grandmother and grandfather had uh, from like the 1930s and earlier. And there are photos of these buildings that, nobody has identified and it sounds like this would be the perfect way to figure out what those buildings are in in my grandparents photo albums it is definitely useful now plus you're seeing more and more local history websites come up local history pages plus more and more collections like the new york library has just put up a massive photo collection in australia we've got picture australia with lots of historic photos up so you can often get main streets and things showing up and it can give you some indications there there's a lot of postcard collections that have gone up so reverse image searching is really worth trying now i'm not saying you're going to get a hundred percent success rate but even if you get a few it is a major plus Okay. All right. On that note, we are going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, be talking about uh, how we can experience uh, some of these uh, functions. Uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we will be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, you will see a follow button. If you press that, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. You'll also see a bunch of uh, social media buttons. Please share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family on your social media. Um, also, through the Blog Talk page, uh, you can access the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. There are some wonderful shows uh, through the five years that uh, we have been broadcasting. Please take advantage of these shows. Many of them are timeless. And then uh, if you want to listen to the Forget-Me-Not Hour on the go, uh, you can access it on iTunes under Jane E. Wilcox. Today, we are uh, in the middle of our discussion about Google for genealogists. Uh, my guest is Helen Smith. And so, Helen, you've been talking about uh, a, a number of uh, Google applications or functions. How do you suggest that we go about experiencing what you have written about? Well, really, diving right in isn't a problem. You can't break Google no matter what you try and do. So it's well worth doing it. Most people when they look at the Google page don't pay much attention to those little words at the top of the page which sort of basically says you know search images and then there's that little thing called more. Click on more and it takes you through to all of the other functions in Google and then just basically click on one and look at it. Because there's things like Google Translate. Do you know that it now has Scots Gaelic, but it also has Latin, and that can be of terrific help. Mind you, of course, Family Search also has in their wiki lots of genealogical terms in different languages, which is also a great help. You've got Google Mail, Gmail. Quite a few of us have used Gmail, but it's a perfect family history tool. Because there's nothing worse than going onto a mail list, finding a post on that list which perfectly relates to your family and you can't contact the other person because their email address is not current. Whereas if you use Gmail, it doesn't matter if you change your address, change your service provider, you will always have that current email address. That's something I did not know. Wow. Uh, so how did you learn all of these things trial and error basically <laughs> you get to the stage where you want to do something you can't work out how to do it and dare I say it google the question you want to do something google how to do it and google will come back now I know we're talking about google but remember google is not the only search engine so Google search engines, and every so often at least try some of those for your queries because every page get in, gets indexed differently by the different search engines. Okay. And are there any nuances in the applications that we should be aware of? You mentioned for Google Images that it's, it's not so keen with facial recognition. Well, being family historians, we've gotten very used to the fact designed for us. We tweak them to suit us, but none of these things were really designed for us. So sometimes they don't give us, they don't give us the 100% stuff we want. If we had our way when we did a search in Google for family history related topics, that would be all we got back. But we live in the real world and we know that doesn't happen. So 
none of these were ever written and designed for us. So we just have to play around and accept things that don't work quite the way we would like them if we had control of the world. Okay. All right. And my last question for Google, I've saved the, the search engine for last because I think the search engine is probably what most of us know Google as. Um, so you talk about the or function and quotation marks, wild card, um, and so on. Do you use all of them? I do, particularly when I'm doing some of those larger, more directed searches that I put in through Google Alerts. Now, remember with all of the operators, and if you actually do a search for Google operators, Google actually has a page explaining all of them. Now, sometimes Google giveth and sometimes it taketh away. And what it did with something we really liked called the tilde symbol. The tilde symbol actually was a synonym. So you put in cemetery and Google would say, okay, cemetery, other words that are similar to that are churchyards, burial grounds and things like that. Whereas Google took that away a while ago. So it's just one of the things we have to be aware of. Mind you, Google gave us things like 90 different languages in Google Translate. They gave us... Um, a lot more of the reverse image search. They've given us Gmail. They've given us Google Docs. They've worked on Blogger. So we have all of these other functions. So if occasionally they take something away, we'll scream and howl in horror. But, hey, we have to live with it. <laughs> okay. There, and there's one thing that you talk about that I did not know about, and it's the number range. Will you tell us about that? Okay. The number range is absolutely marvellous because we've tweaked it to suit us. Now, Google designed it primarily for things like price. I want to buy a camera between $200 and $400. Tell me what's in that range. Now, for me, researching James Quested, who's born in 1767 and dies in 1857, it is so much better for me to use the number range for those years. Now, you can't use it for dates. You can only use it for the years because a date's not actually a number. But that makes it so much easier. If you know that someone was in an area between 1825 and 1865, narrow your searches down by using the num range for, for years. All right, very good. So before we move on to uh, death certificates and our kind of Kayak medical terms. Is there anything else you would like to add about the Google book? Basically, just dive in and get it. It's a good book. Uh, it will help you if you read it uh, and actually put some of the things into practice. It will really help you with your family history searching and also with the other things in it. Now, of course, I take no responsibility if you spend more time on Google or spend time on YouTube. Do you know there's over 200,000 videos on YouTube relating to family history? I did not know that. Very good. All right. So uh, uh, definitely check out Helen's book. Um, as I said, I, I learned some things, and I am really excited to be putting them into practice. So now let's move on to uh, death certificates and archaic medical terms. Um, as I mentioned, you are the perfect person for this book with your, your uh, background. And uh, so what are we going to find from this book? Well, you're going to find over 1,600 
different terms and their meanings. Now, some of the terms, there are multiple meanings for the same thing because that's something you need to remember depending upon where you live and even in the same country, you can get the same medical condition with different terms for it. And that's not even talking about something like syphilis, where, of course, the English took no blame. It was the French disease. The French didn't accept any blame. It was the German disease. The Germans believed the Italians caused it, et cetera, et cetera. So for syphilis, there's about 35 different terms that all mean syphilis. And this is what we see in quite a few of these things. And we also see situations when no doctors didn't know so much. Germ theory is actually a modernish invention. While Louis Pasteur came up with it, it wasn't till the 1890s that it really even gained decent acceptance across the broad spectrum. And then depending upon where you were, particularly in some rural areas, it still didn't gain great knowledge. People tended to have a diagnosis based on symptoms, not based on the actual disease, because they didn't know about it. Viruses, we know about influenza now, but we didn't actually discover viruses till 1930. So the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 had a vaccine, but that vaccine comprised of Haemophilus influenzae, which is a bacteria, because they didn't know that it was actually caused by a virus. So we have a lot of faith in our medical certificates with causes of death going back in the past when perhaps we shouldn't have so much faith. Okay. All right. So you talk a, a little bit about the history, uh, in, in particular in the English-speaking world. So will you just touch on that a little bit? Uh, give us uh, the historical context. Okay. Primarily in the past, we didn't actually have death certificates as civil registration. What we had was a burial entry. And that was generally done by a religious institution, generally a church. So sometimes in that you may get a date of death, but it was the date of burial that was actually considered the most important thing. So a number of countries did start doing civil registration, and England wasn't the first. France, in fact, was actually very early. France started doing it in 1792. And areas where France had invaded also had early civil registration. Southern Italy was in 1809, but northern Italy wasn't until the mid to late 1800s. The Netherlands was 1811. Germany was 1876, except for those areas that had previously been taken over by France. England started on the 1st of July, 1837. And part of it was to actually gain some control as to what was actually happening and getting some feel for what was happening in the in England. So they started doing death certificates. England initially was going to be interested in having the fact that you died, but partially they didn't really care what you died of. And it was actually a statistician that said, look, hey, you know, 
We've actually had mortality bills since 1666 in London and the Great Plague where the parish clerk actually had to write the causes of death and submit it so they could get a feel for what was happening in London. Wouldn't it be great as a statistician to be able to do that for all of England and Wales, of course? Remember, Scotland didn't start till 1855. Luckily, we love William Farr because because of him and his statistical we actually have cause of death on English death certificates. And that started in 1837. 1st of July, 1837. 1855 in Scotland and 1864 in Ireland. And of course, in the US, oh, you're all over the place. Because effectively, <laughs> you have records of death or maybe burial at a county level before it went to state level. And that varies terrifically. Now, England and Wales are combined as one country. Scotland's one country. New Zealand's one country. But Canada, Australia, the US are all based on either state or province registration. So we, none of us have national registration. And that means that we have different starting dates and we have different things on the certificate there's not a huge amount of standardization now because to actually make a list of where you can actually get certificates from and where you can view the indexes and things like that I didn't write that in the book what I've done is I've cheated and hey why duplicate things we've got an amazing resource called Cindy's list and Cindy has links on her website to where you can actually write away or email or whatever we do today to actually get civil records. She has links to places like Family Search, where nowadays we're starting to see more and more digitised records of vital registrations, which is really great. In Canada, you've got Dave Obie's Canadian Genealogy site, which is absolutely brilliant for giving indications there. In Australia, we've got Cora Webb's Web, Cora Web, which is Cora Num's website, which actually gives the address of where you actually get civil registration certificates and indexes, you can see. And of course, we've got Ancestry, we've got Find My Past, we've got My Heritage, and we've got Family Search, which is actually doing a lot of indexing of civil records. For me to put that into the book would have taken the whole 60 plus pages of the book. So I cheated. All right. And uh, you. Uh did not mention Ireland uh, when you were talking about. Uh, yep, Ireland was 1864. Okay, and for Ireland the whole country certificate. Yes, because remember, Ireland didn't split into two countries till 1922. Okay, thank you. All right. In the book, you say that it's important to know the law at the time of the death. Why do you say that? Okay, this gives you some things such as. What questions were asked? Who answered those questions? Did a doctor have to certify the death? Could I just rock up to the local registrar office and certify a death and just say, my granny died? Now, in England, I could until eight, into the 1870s when there was this little bit of a problem called insurance fraud. In those days, you had burial clubs where basically you paid a penny or threepence or whatever a week for the odds are to help with the funeral when a family member died. Now, there were some enterprising souls 
that killed off their relatives, only they didn't actually do it in actuality. What they did was they went to the registrar and said that Granny had died. The registrar wrote out a death certificate, handed it to them. They went down the pub, gave them the death certificate when the insurance agent came in. Then they got the few pound and everyone was laughing. It got picked up, though, when some person who perhaps was a little bit the worse for wear with alcohol went to the same registrar for the same person in too short a time frame. And suddenly there were some questions being asked. Then it was decided that only a doctor could actually certify the death for that notification. So that changed there. Things like the fact if you don't have a body, you can't have a death certificate. You can have an inquest, but they won't write a death certificate if there's no body. How long have you got to actually notify the government that someone has died? All of those things can make an impact on who and where and when. Who did you have to notify? Where did it need to be recorded? All of those things makes it extremely important. What information was going to be asked for? If we were, as family historians, we want to go back and make sure that everything is asked for, we could have a 25-page document and still not be happy. But in a lot of places, you don't get much on a death certificate. Queensland certificates are absolutely brilliant. You know, we get the person's name, their age, their place of birth, their parents' names, their, the, na the occupation of the person who died. You get the person's, whoever they married, and the names and ages of any children who are still alive at the time that person died. Anyone, any children who have died, you just say one male, one female. Now, of course, the person who knows that information is actually dead. So the information on the certificate is only as good as the informant. And with things like divorces not being terribly easy to get in England and in Australia, much easier to get in the US, um, a lot of people who were living together as man and wife were never actually married. Quite a few instances of the second or third wife never quite mentioning the first or the second wife or the children from the previous marriages. What was the occupation at the time of death? Was that the same occupation as during the life? And then we have our doctors and the causes of death. Did they actually know the cause of death? Or were they just saying he died of the blue pox because that was the symptom they could see? And even today, if you've got a genetic illness, the odds of you getting an accurate cause of death and there's only six of you in the world with that condition is very low. Wow. Wow. And this is all on the Queensland death certificates. Queensland death certificates are very good. Uh, English <laughs> wow. death certificates are very bad. Irish are worse. <laughs> South Australian are terrible. And Tasmanian death certificates were so bad that pre, the pre-1900 certificates, rather than charge you $46 or thereabouts for a certificate, they decided they'd just microfilm them and give copies to all the libraries because it really told you so little. And this is one of the problems. The, what you get on a death certificate can vary. And just because a question is there does not mean to say that someone filled it in. In Australia, because... We didn't become a, a federated country until 1901. One of the questions was, how long in the colony? Now, my grandmother, dad's mum, died in 1976. And my mother, who was the informant, actually stated for the death certificate how long my grandmother had been in Australia. 
So in that instance, it was absolutely marvellous. Some of my people in the 1880s, it's not filled in for. So it depends on the informant. But okay. the questions are pretty good. Okay. All right. Um, before we take a break, you mentioned uh, the making a death claim for insurance purposes. About when was that happening so that we're aware that we may be finding duplicate death records for the same person? That was happening in around the 1860s. Audrey Collins from the National Archives at Kew has done a very, very, very nice podcast on this that you can download either off the National Archives website or off iTunes. Now, to the best of my knowledge, none of the entries that they determined to be fraudulent were ever removed. Okay. All right. And, and then this was only in England? Oh, I wouldn't say that. Certainly it was detected <laughs> in England, okay. but um, I wouldn't say that. Mind you, of course, you also had a few of them that suddenly worked out that, well, can't quite do it that way anymore, but we can get a body by murdering people. So you had the black widows up in Yorkshire who actually murdered some of the people through their boarding house in a bid to do the same thing. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. On that note, we are going to take a break. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we will be right back.
welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on August 3rd at 1030, uh, about a half hour. Uh, it's a half hour difference uh, than our normal time, so 1030 Eastern Time. My guest will be Gordon Remington. We are going to be talking about New York probate. And uh, he has written a book, uh, New York Probate Records. We'll talk about the book, and Gordon is going to give us updated information about the accessibility of New York Probate Records. So he'll be updating the information from his book. Um, again, that's on August 3rd at 10:30 in the morning Eastern Time. And then on the third Wednesday of the month, on August 17th, my guests will be Blaine Bettinger and Debbie Parker Wayne. Um, both uh, noted genetic genealogists. We're going to be talking about genetic genealogy. Uh, they have written a book for the National Genealogical Society. Uh, the book will be coming out shortly. Um, so we're going to get a preview of what's in the book and uh, learn what the book is all about. And that will be at 10 o'clock in the morning on August 17th. If you have any questions uh, for upcoming guests, uh, please contact me. You can find me at janeewilcox.com, J-A-N-E-E-W-I-L-C-O-X.com. Also coming up uh, on August 26th, that's a Friday, I'm going to be back uh, speaking at the Women's Rights National Historical Park, uh, where I was this past Sunday. Um, this time, I'm going to be speaking for Equality Day, uh, Women's Equality Day, and I'm going to be uh, presenting my talk, Finding American Women's Voices Through the Centuries. Uh, so please come out, uh, if you're in western New York, uh, to Seneca Falls on August 26th. And then also for New York, uh, coming up in September, the 15th through the 17th, we have the New York State Family History Conference, uh, which will be outside Syracuse. I will be giving two talks uh, during this conference. Uh, one is Vital Records talk. It's appropriate that we're talking about death certificates today with Helen. Um, so I'll be giving my Vital Records talk, and then I will also be giving uh, the Palatine Tenant Farmers talk. And that, again, is on September 15th through 17th. Registration is still open, uh, so please come on out uh, to the New York State Family History Conference. And uh, uh, we're combining with the uh, New York State historians, uh, so it's a dual conference. Um, so today we are uh, talking, uh, continuing to talk with Helen about death certificates and archaic medical terms. So Helen, what's the strangest death certificate that you have encountered? And you can define strangest any way that you would like. Well, there's a few different ones. Probably the one where the woman was killed by her lover in a jealous rage and it named the lover, I thought was pretty nice. Certainly the ones where you actually, and remember accidents have always happened and will always happen. Just in the past, they happened with the horse and cart, more so than the cars we have today. Uh, the colliery disaster ones where they have recovered the body, and some of the very creative ways people have committed suicide over the years, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Um, although I'm not quite sure how you drink Lysol accidentally. It was a favorite way of committing suicide. Then we have our whole range of infectious diseases. Being a public health microbiologist, I've got a particular fondness for those. And 
quite a range of things. Something like group A streptococci gives a range of diseases going from scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, necrotizing fasciitis. It's the one bug that causes it, but there are a range of conditions. So it gives a range of symptoms, so you'll get a range of things on a death certificate. Occupational okay. diseases, though, they're the thing I really like uh, because we, we, we complain about workplace health and safety today, but really it's a fairly modernish invention. Even today, it's not always abided to as well as it should be. But our ancestors, even the ones getting back into the 1920s, didn't have that protection. So occupational causes of death, and I'm actually going to be talking about that at the FGS conference in Springfield, Illinois, in late August, early September this year. Okay. And uh, we'll be talking about the FGS conference uh, in just a bit. Um, so, again, how many archaic medical terms do you have in the book? It's about 1,670. Okay, and then how did you go about finding out about all of them? And this is your, I should add, this is your second edition. So I'm assuming you've added some more. Oh, yeah. The first one came out in 2011, and it was a 37-page book with a reasonably reasonable size font. I've actually made this one a bit smaller so it will fit in, because if you go past a certain number of pages, you've got to do saddleback and all that sort of thing. So I had to make the font a bit smaller to get everything to fit in. So there's 1,670-something in there. Uh, death certificates, reading medical journals, reading medical newspapers, putting the call out on social media because people over the years have sent me different causes of death, reading old medical dictionaries. And remember, you need a medical dictionary that's published prior to about 1910 because post that date, they've done a lot more standardization on the names of deaths causes of death. So you won't necessarily find some of those old names in the more modern dictionaries. Do you, and do you have a recommendation for a medical dictionary? Uh, any medical dictionary published prior to 1910. If you go to Internet Archive, you'll find a few. And again, it's worth getting, depending on where your ancestors are from, get one from the country they're from at around that time frame. I came across a really nice thing on Internet Archive a little while ago. And remember I was talking about William Farr, the statistician from England. Being a statistician, he likes to do analyses. And he had a real problem with the fact that so many of the doctors weren't actually conforming in what they did as a cause of death. Now, dying of old age uh, was a very common Thing. So was act of God. Now, realistically, God didn't have a lot to do with it. It just simply meant it was a sudden, unexpected death. So it means the person wasn't sick. They probably dropped dead of an aneurysm, a heart attack or a stroke. But it really makes your figures very suspect if you have these sorts of vague terms. So William Farr started working on a classification and it basically took the rest of his life. But what he did was he ended up in a conference in Europe. And there's a book on Internet Archive. If you search for William Farr, you'll find it. It's the proceedings of that conference. And you've actually got 
causes of death in about 20 languages. And that's really nice. It's about that 1880s time frame when you're looking for German causes of death in comparison to French or I think there was Polish, I can't quite remember. I don't have any Polish research, so it doesn't always strike me off, but definitely the French and the German. But it had the English translation as well, so it went all the way across. So have a look on Internet Archive. It's a great place for that sort of thing. Okay, and again, how can we find this uh, uh, information about the, the deaths in the different languages? That one was, it was something that William Farr was on the Congress proceedings. If you do a search for anything with William Farr, that's F-A-R-R, uh, and causes of death, it'll come up. It, it was a, con a conference proceedings style booklet, the standardization. William Farr's became the Farr-Ogle classification scheme, which became the international classification of death scheme which is what we're currently using today. We're up to series 10 of that. So it's changed a lot because over the years when they've discovered new causes of death, they actually start um, increasing them. So you'll get your HIV, your AIDS, some of your genetic conditions and things like that in. So if you look on wolfbane.com slash ICD, it actually shows you what was listed for the first international classification of death that came out in 1900. And, you know, there wasn't that many. And in the book, I've actually done a comparison of the first 20 from 1900, 1938 and 1990. And you can see the differences in what people were concerned about. Now, you had a lot of smallpox, cowpox, cowpox and other effects of vaccination, chickenpox, measles, scarlet fever, plague, whooping cough, diphtheria. This was all in the 1900. The 20th one is diarrhea due to food. By the time you get to 1938, you've got cholera, you've got meningococcal meningitis, you've got diphtheria, tetanus. And tuberculosis, instead of just being one thing, is divided in tuberculosis of a whole range of things. Tuberculosis of the skin, tuberculosis of the vertebral column, tuberculosis of the intestines. When you get to 1990, you certainly still have those infectious diseases, but it's actually separating out more. And you've suddenly gotten up to over a thousand different types, plus lots of breakdowns of those. You've got the huge range of cancers and all of those. So it's great looking at the evolution of that. Okay. All right. And zeroing in on some uh, medical conditions, I spotted grocer's itch, and this is a, a, a skin disease due to irritation from mites. And that, that one yep. kind of jumped out at me. And then there was also one called St. Vitus Dance, uh, which sounds interesting, but the symptoms were terrible. And it, this was uh, jerky, uncontrollable movements associated with rheumatic fever. So yep. are, are there a few diseases or, or medical conditions that you particularly uh, think are your favorites or that you, you like the names of? Oh, there's a whole heap of different names and the things like Potter's Rot uh, and then those lovely Wedgwood painted wonderful vases that people liked. Uh, you know, those poor girls had lead, they had arsenic, they had all of those difficult 
chemicals. So they had those causing them problems. But because we tended to be quite descriptive, so we had our cotton pox, which is a mild form of smallpox. We had our creeping paralysis, uh, which is a, basically can either be botulism or it can be any of those sorts of conditions where effectively you're gradually getting things. Even Guillain-Barr syndrome would have been classified under that because as we've learnt more, we've learnt what it's about. Things like cholera infantum. Now, it's not true cholera, but it affected young children, so they called it infantum. It gave similar symptoms, but it wasn't the same. Christian disease, that's what the Turks called syphilis because, of course, those infidels had to have brought it in. So I love the fact of the descriptions for some of these. Uh, yes, climateric melancholy, climateric insanity, because, you know, when women went through the menopause, they didn't cope with it terribly well. So that was the diseases they suffered that. The whole range of diseases you got from being down the coal mines. A whole range of congenital diseases. Uh, now, admittedly, sometimes some of the terminology used is not terribly uh, politically correct. Things like frog belly. So if you're a young child and you've got rickets, which is caused by a vitamin D deficiency, you get a flaccid abdomen. So it's definitely something where they've looked at the symptom and they've come up with a name. And some of those names are so descriptive. Very interesting. So uh, before we uh, wrap up our uh, discussion, is there anything else that you would like to add about the death certificates and archaic medical terms? Um, look at the medical terms given. Pay attention to when the certificate was written. That gives you an indication of what the medical knowledge at the time was likely to have been. Remembering, up until the germ theory really started taking on, people believed that bad smells caused illness. So at times you can understand why it's not as easy to work out the cause of death. Plus, remembering we had a huge population migration. You had traders, you had soldiers, you had all of those. So you may not think of malaria in an area where you don't normally get malaria. But if you've had a soldier work going through India, you had traders going through India, you had traders in the US that went to South America, and of course they went to India as well, they can bring those things back. The US in the southern ports had huge problems with yellow fever, which of course was called Bronze John because that's what you looked like. So, And even yellow fever, that's what you looked like. So all of those things really is makes it interesting but you need to pay attention to the time frame was the death certified or not certified because you know if it was great uncle jack who said what the child died of maybe it's not accurate also women's conditions we didn't talk about down there so some of those cancers of the reproductive system may not actually ever be mentioned Maybe breast cancer won't be mentioned. Sometimes it is, but maybe it's not. So you need to take, you need to sometimes have a look-see. And of course, if you were rich, you possibly never died of syphilis or some of those conditions because someone could be slipped a bit of money to actually smooth over the death certificate. 
Okay, very interesting. So, Helen, how can we purchase the books? Okay. So, the North American listeners can actually buy a print copy from Global Genealogy. And I believe you'll have the addresses on the website. Australian listeners can get a print copy from Gould Genealogy, UK listeners from My History. And Gould Genealogy, who also has a subsidiary, which is Jenny Books, that does the ebook version, has got a special promotion for your listeners where they will give a $10 discount off a $20 or greater Australian dollars order using the voucher code that you have available on your website. Now that promotion expires on the 20 on the 31st of October this year. Okay. And that is all posted on the Blog Talk page. So if you're listening on iTunes, uh you'll need to go back onto the Blog Talk page. Um so Helen, you mentioned the FGS conference uh, coming up at the end of August. Uh uh and that's in Springfield, Illinois. Uh you're giving a few other talks. Yes, I'm giving the talk on occupational causes of death. My job is killing me, I've titled it. I'm giving a talk on workhouse records. I'm giving a talk on researching in Australia. And I'm also giving a luncheon presentation for the British group on the Battle of Bossenden Wood, which is where a gentleman kind of comes in and persuades all of the agricultural labourers that he can actually give them everything they ever wanted for nothing and basically sets a riot up. <laughs> okay. All right. And then uh, you have some other things happening. Uh, Unlock the Past, uh, who is the yeah. uh, publisher of the books, uh, has cruises. Uh, tell us about some of the upcoming cruises. Okay. So Unlock the Past, uh, which you can find at unlockthepast.com.au, is, has got a cruise in 2017 in July. And what we do is we have a conference on board the cruise. So on sea days, there's lots of lectures and presentations. And on shore days, you get to go on tourist, which is really nice for your family. You can bring them along and they can get to all the touristy shippy things while you're off listening. And then you can do the family thing when you're on shore. So that's going to Papua New Guinea. And we've got a World War II stream as well as a number of other streams. The Expected program for that's available on the website at the moment. Uh, that can be subject to change. Then in 2018, there's a strong probability. Um, we just have to work things. And it depends upon what the cruise companies do for itineraries because they don't release those itineraries till not that many months before they actually do the cruise. So you can't plan. You've got to sort of plan it vaguely. We're looking at doing an Alaskan cruise. It's pretty much similar to what we did on the FGS conference going up the inside passage and then that will be a conference on there and potentially there might be a couple of shore expo seminar days attached either end of that just trying to work logistics at the moment okay all right and then uh are you speaking uh, coming up elsewhere uh, in addition to springfield illinois uh coming up next year um i'm hoping to talk at roots tech i've submitted for roots tech I'm doing a massive amount of talking around Australia. I'm doing a webinar with uh, the Surname Society, uh, which will be part of the Legacy Tree webinars after it's been done. And I'm not quite sure where else I'm talking then. It's sort of all things, as, there's a few little things in the pipeline that sort of can't be spoken about till they're actually organized. Okay, all right. And then you have your day job. Then I have my day job. My boss has this quaint idea I actually need to be there. So at times it's a bit of a balancing act. 
Certain, certainly. So, uh, Helen, as I uh, end all of uh, my shows, will you tell us a, a, a little bit more about your ancestry? You told us uh, told us a little bit at the beginning, but uh, fill that out a little bit more. Okay, as I said, my father was English, so he certainly has a large number of his ancestors in the Kent region in England, but he also has a few sprinkled around in the other counties, such as Shropshire, Cornwall, Devon. My mother's fifth generation Australian, and she has ancestors coming into Australia, into Queensland particularly, from the 1860s up to the 1880s. Yes, quite new in comparison to the US, I know. Um, but they came, the others came from England with one person coming from Wales. So I'm pretty UK oriented. Now I have family members, of course, with the larger families you had in the past, that have gone to Canada, the US, New Zealand, South, South Africa. There's even a couple that went off to South America. So people tended to move. Plus, of course, there's some military people there, so they've gone around. So while my research is concentrated in Australia and the UK, I've also dabbled in research in a number of other places because I've had family disappear there. Okay. And what is your longest line going back in England? Okay, longest line going back into England is the Real and Tremaine line, which is down in Cornwall, and that goes back to the early 1500s. I do a Quested one that name study as well, and I have two major lines of Quested in Kent. It's a peculiarly Kent name. The earliest person I have in that study, not that I have a direct line back to them, is 1342. Oh, wow. wow. The earliest Quested I have a direct line back to is in the early 1500s. Okay. All right. And Mind then you, what? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I also have people who family lines stop in the 1800s because uh, a single mother, etc. So some of those, I'm hoping some of the DNA studies will actually help me with. Okay. And then, what ancestor has uh, called out to you the most? Oh, George Howard Busby, my mother's grandfather. Uh, May not be the gentleman I want to invite to dinner, but definitely the gentleman who's very interesting to research at a distance. He served in the Boer War. He served at Gallipoli. He was a recruiting sergeant. He was involved in amateur radio. He was a justice of the peace. He was involved, started a politic, was involved in the start of a political party when they came back from World War I because the soldiers felt disenfranchised. He just was what you'd almost call a renaissance man. He got involved in so many different things. Not sure he was a terribly nice person, but definitely fun to research. All right, all right. So, Helen, thank you so much for uh, joining us from Australia, where it, I think is past midnight now. Is that correct? Yeah, it's about quarter past one in the morning. <laughs> okay, all right. And and uh, Helen assured me she was a night owl, uh, so we're, I am. we're not... We're not taxing her. So, Helen, thank you again uh, for telling us about Google and also uh, the death certificates and archaic medical terms. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. <laughs> 